0: In August this year, in the Southern District of New York, a judge handed a 63-month sentence, so over five years, to a man known as Kampala Man. He'd pled guilty to the offense of trafficking millions of dollars worth of rhino horns and elephant ivory. The length of the sentence was to send a loud and clear message that large-scale poaching and wildlife trafficking has serious consequences. Kampalaman's real name is Mawazu Kroma, a citizen of Liberia, but a resident of Uganda. For almost a decade, Kroma ran an international illegal wildlife trafficking criminal enterprise which spans large swathes of the African continent, from Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Guinea, to Kenya, Mozambique, Senegal, and Tanzania with buyers in the United States and Southeast Asia. The Chroma cartel trafficked at least 190 kilograms of rhino horn and 10 tons of elephant ivory, estimated to be worth over 7 million US dollars. Now, I would love to go into this story in more detail, but maybe that's an episode for another day. Because I want to go back to 2017, when the China Customs Anti-Smuggling Bureau made several arrests in a place called Dong in southern China. Information had been passed to the authorities by the Environment Investigation Agency, the EIA, who had spent years investigating what has become known as the Dong Network, an international ivory trafficking syndicate. Before the arrests, it was estimated that 80% of all poached ivory that made its way from Africa to China went through Dong. Chinese authorities launched an international investigation working with law enforcement in Tanzania, Mozambique and Nigeria, which resulted in major traffickers being arrested, extradited and convicted in China to between 6 and 15 years. Now, there are loads of things that connect these two cases Illegal wildlife trade, transnational organised criminal syndicates, and so on But the thing that stands out above all, and I think the most important thing is that both of these cases required international cooperation between a number of countries and civil society Without this cooperation, there is no guarantee that these arrests and convictions could have ever been made To defeat transnational organised crime, you have to have a transnational response. And for many years, this was not the case. Welcome to Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is How to Respond to Environmental Crime. When I say the words environmental crime, what comes to mind? I imagine it's poaching, images of those mighty animals like elephants or rhino hunted for their ivory or horn. Or maybe you've heard of that adorable little armoured animal, the pangolin, often cited as the most trafficked animal in the world. These do fall into this category, but the term environmental crime is much, much more than that. It can range from the illegal wildlife trade to illegal mining, and from timber trafficking to the illegal disposal of plastic waste. Go back to the episode Plastics for Profit to hear about that. And it took a long time for us to get to a point as a society where we cooperate to combat the likes of the Chroma cartel or the Suedong network. The damage caused by these illicit markets can be both environmentally destructive and long-lasting. Those who fight against this damage can find themselves targets, even losing their lives. So I think the best place to start is with a nice and simple question. What are the global risks of environmental crime? See, nice and simple.
1: So I think you would have to be living under a rock right now to not be aware that we are going through huge shifts in awareness around the global risk posed by both by climate change and and by biodiversity loss to a lesser but still important degree.
0: This is Simone Haysum, the thematic lead on environmental crime at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. She's written a new paper which we are going to discuss in this episode. It's called An Analytic Review of Past Responses to Environmental Crime and Programming Recommendations.
1: We talk in this report about how the role of environmental crime has a key but often underappreciated role in both those crises. Those crises obviously are born out of larger global issues around our economies and our societies. But environmental crime poses a key threat to our ability to respond to them, to, to stop the actions which are making them worse, like deforestation. And we also find that they are linked to several of the SDGs, not just those that are directly linked to biodiversity, but also those that are linked to alleviating poverty and livelihoods and the integrity of communities around the world.
0: SDGs are Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of these set out by the United Nations, and they include things like climate action, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, and so on.
1: We also make the point that while in the, the scope of environmental crime varies widely, while a lot of the actors involved in it may not be highly organized, while it may draw on illicit economies, which are driven by livelihoods and subsistence issues, there are very organized elements of many uh, illicit environmental commodity supply chains. And in the worst cases, these have had devastating effects on government institutions. So several cases that I've worked on across my career, you can trace the rapid and vast deterioration of environmental ministries or parts of the state, especially which are acting as gatekeepers for environmental resources. There are... Amongst people who, who follow the timber trade, the, the case of Madagascar is notorious for the way in which illegal timber fed into huge distortions of democracy and dirty money which entered elections. Environmental crime can also be accompanied by human rights abuses, uh, such as torture, rape, displacement, as well as uh, undermine communities' ability to to, to make ends meet. So it it really has uh, so many connections to the kind of goals that we are trying to achieve from a development perspective, from a democracy perspective, from a human rights perspective.
0: And so when we talk about environmental crimes, like with other illicit markets, be it drug trafficking, financial crimes, and so on, these have a hugely corrosive effect on society and state institutions, and how we respond to them is incredibly important. It's 1948, much of the world is emerging from the rubble of the Second World War. In Fontainebleau, just south of Paris, France, a new organization was formed, the International Union for the Protection of Nature. It was made up of a few nations and also some international and national organizations as well. Among the objectives laid out was a commitment to, and I quote, the preservation in all parts of the world of wildlife and the natural environment the establishment of national parks, nature reserves, and monuments and wildlife refuges, with special regard to the preservation of species threatened with extinction. So we're gonna need to speed through some dates here. 15 years later, in 1963, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES, was drafted. 10 years later, in 1973, 80 countries signed up to CITES. The convention came into force on the 1st of July, 1975. And CITES remains at the centre of our responses to environmental crime today. So let's call this period from the 1970s to the mid-90s, phase one. Here's Simone Hasem again.
1: So the 1970s were this period when environmental issues were first presented as international problems and international threats to peace and security. And CITES was one of several UN agencies and conventions, which was established at this time, amidst a lot of optimism that that kind of multilateral action would would be able to do something about this problem. It's a highly ratified treaty. It has um, a very large number of signatories, which is, I think, testament to the fact that there was a, a lot of optimism around what CITES would be able to achieve. Also crucially in this period there were extinction crises which were extremely serious there was a rhino poaching crisis which nearly drove three rhino species to extinction and there was also an elephant ivory poaching crisis in the 1980s and in both cases this led to cites appendix 1 listings appendix 1 is, is sort of the most serious listing that you can have under cites which is with the highest uh, restrictions on international trade And after these listings, uh, both those poaching crises uh, came under better control and and eventually were no longer seen as the major threats to the species. So CITES was really seen as having been a solution to those crises in that period, which were understood very much as problems of uncontrolled trade and to which trade treaty like CITES could be a solution.
0: These appendices essentially rank the concern for the species listed. As Simone said, Appendix 1 is the level of most concern. But there are other levels. Regular listeners might remember that here on Deep Dive, we did a couple of episodes on Guinea-Bissau, the tiny West African nation. One of those episodes was called Blood Timber, and it was about the famous rosewood trees, the Pterocarpus erinaceus, a protected species that is highly prized in Southeast Asia, but also listed on Appendix 2 of CITES which means international trade is strictly controlled to prevent it becoming a threat to its survival. And yet, political instability in Guinea-Bissau has seen both politicians and the military become active players in a number of illicit markets to fund their political ambitions. Here's what Lucia Bird, the GI's director of the West African Observatory, told us in that episode.
1: Well, as with cocaine, profits from illicit logging have fed into election campaigning in the country for many years. And they were particularly prominent in the 2014 elections, which came right at the end of this period of unchecked logging during the time of military junta rule in the country. And there are reports of trucks full of logs traveling into Bissau every day in the months before the elections. And a number of current prominent politicians are believed to have benefited significantly from funds from the illicit logging market to fund their electoral campaigns.
0: At the end of October 2022, CITES contacted all the countries where the rosewood is found and has proposed a complete trade suspension and asked all states that import the wood to refuse importation into their borders. Now, illegal logging is happening all over the world, from the Amazon rainforest to Cambodia and from Myanmar to Zimbabwe.
2: We are having a very big problem since 2000. And we had government resettling the ruling party supporters in plantations. I mean, the total landmass of Zimbabwe is 39 million hectares. And of that 39 million hectares, about 17 million hectares are forest areas both plantations and indigenous forests.
0: This is Farai Maguwu, the director at the Centre for Natural Resource Governance in Zimbabwe and member of the GI Network of Experts.
2: But we're seeing these forests disappearing. I think about 300 hectares are being lost every year to illegal timber harvesting in plantations and indigenous forests, especially mukwa, mahogany trees, which they use for furniture. So, what we're seeing now is increasing lawlessness in these forest areas where some of these people are war veterans who are almost above the law. If you travel in Zimbabwe at night, you meet several trucks of big timber trees and you don't know where they're going. So, it's an underground economic activity that is thriving very much in Zimbabwe. And then it comes to law enforcement, it's been very weak. And sometimes the police are colluding with the illegal loggers, such that when they arrest these people, the timber will disappear from the police station. And also the equipment which they confiscate, it also disappear. Possibly they hand them back to the, the, the loggers uh, after they've exchanged the money.
0: Organised crime, in whatever guise it comes and whichever illicit market it operates in, needs corrupt state officials. Organised crime simply cannot operate without an element of complicity. Of course, each region or country has its nuances. For example, in the recent Cambodia logging report from the GI called Branches of Illegality, Cambodia's Illegal Logging Structures, Investigations highlighted that, and I quote, corruption in the illegal timber trade cannot be dismissed as simply opportunistic or individually driven rather the system is carefully organized into a hierarchical structure that often resembles a traditional mafia whereby payments travel up the chain of command and are often standardized and or paid in advance money from the illegal timber trade moves through this shadow taxation system from the loggers to low-level authorities to the upper echelons of the government and armed forces Corruption greases the wheels of organised crime. Now, during the 90s and the end of the Cold War, we saw an explosion in globalisation as the world began to thaw. Global trade levels increased, technology linked disparate parts of the world, and regulatory barriers came down. It was also a time when we saw a shift, particularly in timber trafficking, Prior to this, timber generally flowed from south to north. But now it started to flow from south to south as the wealth of countries like India, Brazil and China increased. Unsurprisingly, this surge in global trade and interconnectedness offered by the internet, which had begun to be widely used, saw organised crime in a prime position to capitalise. So let's call this phase two. Here's Simone Haysum again.
1: So the mid-90s to mid-2010s, we start to see, and really across several illicit economies, just this rapid acceleration, shifting geographic patterns of consumption, manufacture and demand, and an enabling of illicit trade, which, which also enables the illicit. And this really turbocharged a lot of illicit environmental commodity flows.
3: We have, in one particular park, experienced a five-fold increase in poaching of elephants between April 1999 and August 1999, before we actually uh, arrested the gang. And this is really very important. We continue to have even more escalation of poaching to the northern part of Kenya, where elephants freely roam outside the conservation areas. We have two bullets on this tusk. This is one bullet which went in through there, and you can see how the bullet graced the tusk and came out through this end, which is broken. As you can see, you can see part of the remainder of the bu- hole that the bullet went through. Again, a very fine specimen with very high tourism potential was put down through the hands of a poacher.
1: Along with them, due to various compounding factors, there were renewed crises for these very charismatic species, rhino and elephant, um, which really reshaped the terrain of the global response to wildlife trade and were extremely galvanizing. So by the late-mid 2010s, when these crises were, were accelerating, there began to be a strong push for the expansion of criminal law in regard to the wildlife trade, as well as the establishment of new dedicated units to tackle environmental crime. We also saw at this period, though, a greater skepticism that trade bans alone would would solve the issues. So, the beginning of what became ultimately extremely intense debates about the value of prohibition versus legal and sustainable trade.
0: It was from the mid-90s and into the noughties, phase two, that we saw an example of just how intertwined the world had become and how seemingly unrelated illicit markets can collide. For example, last year the GI released a report called A Synthetic Age, which looked at the growth of the methamphetamine market in East and Southern Africa. I'll put a link to this in the podcast notes. Now, you might be asking what meth has to do with environmental crime. We'll have a listen to Jason Eli, a senior expert at the GI and author of that paper, A Synthetic Age. These are chemicals that Chinese syndicates could get cheaply and easily in mainland China because, of course, at the time they, they were not controlled. So for them, they were taking something that was cheap for them to acquire and import into the country and trading it for something that was valuable the abalone that they could then return and, and make huge amounts on. And for the Cape gangs, they were taking something that was cheap to them, the poached abalone, trading it with the uh, Chinese syndicates for something that was very difficult to acquire at the time. These precursor chemicals that they could then use to to produce their own methaqualone and then eventually methamphetamine. So it's, it's a relationship that is at the foundation of the growth of, of the meth industry within the region, all based on a marine snail. So abalone is a kind of sea snail, which are a delicacy in Southeast Asia. Chinese syndicates and cape gangs were swapping abalone for precursor chemicals used in the manufacture of a drug called methacbalone, and subsequently, methamphetamine. Today, Jason writes that, and I quote, There is no place in South Africa where good quality meth is not available. And so that original environmental crime of poaching abalone played a significant role in the growth of that illicit drug market. But equally, during this period there was a recognition that local communities were important to any ongoing and future conservation efforts. This was also a period of increased civil society action and exposure in the media to the issues surrounding environmental crime. This increased attention allowed for an expansion of laws enabling criminal investigation and sanctions, which drove the creation of a significant number of illegal wildlife trade laws around the world. Many inadequate, but certainly a recognition of the importance of tackling these crimes. A fact not lost on Interpol who established their own Environmental Security Unit. Next, we turn to phase three. So let's call this 2014 to 2019. Now, this period is of particular interest to me because we saw a huge escalation in violence in a number of different areas, one of which was the assassination of so-called environmental defenders. And So who better to speak to about this than Ana Paula Oliveira, who manages the Assassination Witness Project here at the GI and presents the podcast The Ripple Effect, which highlights the impact of contract killings. I wanted to ask why environmental defenders become targets.
4: I think what we see is that a concentration of killings of environmentalists occur in places where natural resources are abundant and there risks of being exploited by criminal groups. So the illegal exploitation of extractive resources such as minerals, metals and other have been reportedly dangerous for environmentalists. Also illegal logging is another market that has recorded incidents of violence, including with connection with drug trafficking groups as we've seen in the case of Mexico. Ultimately, the protection of the lands, right? So this connects to large-scale infrastructure projects and agribusiness, putting particularly indigenous peoples at risk. Overall, I think the proximity to the natural resources is what make environmental defenders more vulnerable. Which industry then is more problematic, I think will vary largely geographically.
0: This was a period which saw prominent environmental defenders like Berta Casades in Honduras or Bill Kayong in Malaysia assassinated. Go and check out The Ripple Effect and the Assassination Witness Project for more about this issue. I'll pop a link in the podcast notes. But despite this uptick in violence, and this might sound a little flippant, but progress was made as environmental crime was recognised as an organised crime.
1: So we talk about this response as having various more or less positive and more or less negative elements to it. This period saw a huge escalation in violence in a number of different areas. One was in direct assassination and assaults of whistleblowers and activists and other people, often at the community level, who are sometimes called environmental defenders, which in the report, we talk about the relationship between that and corruption, which is another theme that evolves through these different periods, also turbocharged by various shifting and, and relaxation of regulations, a link to globalization. On the more positive side, we saw in this period a shift in multilateral engagement with environmental crime. So at really high levels in in the UN, this discussion of environmental crime as something that is enabled and facilitated by serious organized crime, which requires a specific response. And I would say that the more sophisticated conversations about that were talking about the role of illicit financial flows, the role of corruption, as well as the role of demand side activities and consumption. And there was this greater recognition that some sort of criminal justice response to trafficking would need to be launched in various countries around the world. At the same time, a lot of the urgency around the the, the rhino and and elephant poaching crises had also fed into underlying dynamics. Some of them new, some of them re-energizing existing inclinations for parks to be managed in a militarized way. So, we also started to see anti poaching activities become militarized or remilitarized, and approaches to conservation become securitized in many places, a lot of it concentrated in Africa. And we talk about this in the report as something distinct from the response to trafficking, but something which began to be a serious threat to the legitimacy of conservation to the relationships at a local level between local governance authorities and communities, as well as something that generated really specific and, and terrible abuses at a local level in some cases.
0: This was a time when civil society was making waves, and perhaps this goes some way to explain why organised crime and corrupt officials targeted environmental defenders. They'd become a serious threat to the ability of criminal networks to operate with impunity. Um.
5: Approaching this from an investigation, prosecution, and arrest point of view, and starting with how environmental crime is looked at in Africa generally, it is given a very low priority because wildlife and trees, when it comes to issues of law enforcement, cannot go to court themselves. So somebody must move there and represent them.
0: This is Vincent Opien, a state prosecutor in Uganda who has also spent time on ranger patrols in Uganda's national parks. He specialises in wildlife crimes and was the driving force behind the Natural Resource Conservation Network, an NGO dedicated to conserving fauna and flora in Uganda.
5: Civil society, we are doing a, a great supportive role. And our supportive role is majorly at the level of investigation and prosecution, then arrest and life. But this is not very good enough because we seem to be doing a lot of post work. And I, I feel so bad every time I'm arresting suspects with wildlife products. I think I would have done a great job if I get them before they kill this wildlife. I have so far put behind bars 890 suspects. They are all serving their sentences. But my concern is if I would stopped them from committing this crime, I think I would have done a great job. So most of the donors, most of the grants that people get to do this kind of work, once to look at, they, they put a lot of emphasis on arrest, arrest, arrest. But we are not putting a lot of emphasis on stopping the commission of crime. By the time we arrest everybody, we'll be having an empty pack. But if we can put a lot of efforts in stopping the commission of crime, this would work. And this can only succeed if we involve and engage communities in wildlife crime law enforcement. Communities are key. The laws are clear, the laws are saying wildlife belongs to the community, wildlife belongs to the people. But apart from telling them their own wildlife, we are not engaging them and involving them in conservation. A future where community are involved in conservation and engage fully. Will make a big difference in wildlife conservation. But where we just keep them away and keep arresting, executing, it, it will not work because they normally keep saying, We are not seeing the benefits. Elephants are destroying our crops. We don't see anything coming from the government to support us. So the best thing is for us to also retaliate and kill. Um, we have also encountered a very good interstate collaboration. At times, as a country, you, you cannot do everything. You cannot be very effective because transnational wildlife crime is a serious issue that cut across. You will find a piece of information in this country, a piece of information in another country, and a piece of information in another. So if states are not collaborating, then it is a clear indication that actually the criminals are more organized than us. But if we collaborate, we normally bring them down. The more case, we collaborated with u.s fish and wildlife service we collaborated with other ngos we collaborated with other partners and everybody was bringing in their piece you just bring your small piece and fit him and at the end of it all the case was built up the guy was expelled from uganda and was prosecuted in the united states of america so if we are not collaborated we as ugandans had failed completely to prosecute this guy because Corruption. We took him to court and he was released on bail. Then, when he came out on bail, he was already looking for a godfather to help him fight the court system. And he has offered as much as $150,000 to whoever is willing to help him fight this kind of case. So, with that kind of money in the hands of criminals, then we are not safe if we don't come together and do everything together.
0: And that brings us neatly back to the very beginning of this podcast international collaboration, which we saw operate successfully with the takedown of the Chroma Cartel and the Suedong Network. This increased awareness of the issues and how it relates to one of the most pressing issues facing our time, climate change, and of course, how it affects development have become central. Indeed, the EU's Service for Foreign Policy instruments have added environmental crimes to their work on disrupting illicit flows. Here's Peter Wagner, the director of the FPI at the European Commission.
3: I
2: think it's very important that the EU, our member states, and then partner countries to, uh, around the world continue working on this. For us, it's logical part of the wider work on peace building, crisis response, global threats.
0: The FPI wanted to look at environmental crime, which they identify as an important global issue, as part of their wider research into transnational organised crime. Is Natalie Powells, the Head of Unit, Stability and Peace, Global and Transregional Threats at the FPI.
6: Our role in our team in the Foreign Policy Instruments Service is to look at challenges from a global or transregional perspective. We need to find that specific transnational or regional dimension to the problem and say, what can we do around that? Where is the focus for us?
0: Our attitude towards the environment has to change. It cannot remain business as usual. And despite the progress that has been made in relation to responding to environmental crime, we are still falling well short of where we need to be. For example, many of us recycle. But how many of us are aware of what happens to that plastic waste after we put it in the recycle bin or box? So last year the GI released a paper called Plastics for Profit. We did a deep dive episode of the same name, in that, we heard how a former broker claimed that a UK-based waste company was used as a front for prostitution, drug trafficking and other illicit activities. They would send waste from the UK to their partner company in Turkey. Inside, all manner of illicit drugs would be hidden to avoid detection from sniffer dogs. The drugs would then be retrieved and the waste illegally dumped. Here's Virginia Kamoli, a senior expert at the GI and author of that paper, Plastics for Profit.
4: And what criminals do is they basically use legitimate recycling and other companies as fronts from which they can, you know, profit from the waste business. They also engage in money laundering through these businesses and all sorts of fraud and forgery and manipulation of legal records and also corruption. What is also interesting is that although traditionally, the waste industry has been associated with so-called white collar crimes. There is more evidence pointing towards a convergence with other forms of criminality such as drug trafficking, human trafficking and even even modern slavery.
0: So like I said, we are still falling well short of where we need to be. Fortunately, there are a number of prominent and successful civil society organisations that work in this sector. So civil society can and does play a leading role in our responses. Like the Environment Investigation Agency, who helped take down the Suedong Network. Or Vincent in Uganda and his organisation the Natural Resource Conservation Network. But there are many others, like Brazilian investigative journalist Carla Mendes, who works with Mongabay, a non-profit environmental science and conservation news platform, and she recently published an investigation into palm oil companies in the Amazon and the impact it has on the communities living there.
6: The thing that we see is the lack of enforcement, lack of political will and corruption. So it's really important to think about ways to prevent crime and how to stop it, because otherwise we will keep seeing our international resources being exported explored, without solutions to that. And one important thing is that in terms of supply chain, all the parts of that chain should be traced and investigated because I'll come back to to logging, which is a big issue in the Brazilian Amazon and several countries. What happens is that, okay, there is a police operation. They go there and put behind bars the logger. But does the problem finish with that logger? No, we know that behind that guy there is an organized crime, there is a mafia, we know about political ties. So we really need to track where this problem begins and go against these powerful people because people from the communities they are there sometimes they are doing that because they don't have another option to survive. Usually there are remote areas, there is not income, the government don't give them their their basic needs of course that we won't say that they weren't bandits as well but i mean we could not just blame them we need to to, to, cut the, to look at the entire thing and one important thing for example talking about technology yes the internet's being used for the bad for wildlife trafficking and other things but it can also can be used for the good In the Amazon rainforest, for example, we have several examples where NGOs are doing grassroots work with indigenous communities and providing them with satellite phones and smartphones, and using this, they can report, you know, even offline, because, of course, internet connection is a challenge if there is deforestation, if there is any environmental crime helping. And I think that this should really tackle environmental crime, we cannot just rely on government. I think as NGOs, civil society, the government, private sector, all together, because otherwise we will fail. And of course, media plays a key role on this because we shed light on this wrongdoing. In mid-September, I did a story that the they assassinated four indigenous leaders in just 10 days in Brazil. So it's a a situation that's really, really scary. And not just then, of course, all of you were aware of the murder of Don Phillips, British journalist, and Bruno Pereira, who was an indigenous expert in the Amazon. I knew both of them, and it's really scary. And of course, to me, as an environmental journalist and all environmental journalists, we are all scared and thought, this could may have happened to me. But at the same time, we cannot stop. We need to keep, doing this work and doing, of course, the the risk assessment. But yeah, it's it's not an easy situation at all, but that's why it's really important to think about solutions and to prevent this crime, because if the situation continues, where will we go?
0: The murder of Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira made international headlines.
6: This brings the search to an end and closure for the families who pushed so hard in trying to find the two men. But of course it also reveals the brutal criminality in the Amazon and the lack of ability by the state to control it. The families now say they'll fight for justice.
0: It was a brazen example of the extent to which organised crime is willing to use violence to control their illicit industry. Civil society doesn't have the protections in place. States need to protect people. That is their overriding job, to protect your citizens. And one thing we have learnt from studying assassinations and murders like this is that they are a form of criminal governance the violence is used to maintain the status quo and frighten others away from reporting or investigating these issues but civil society contains the bravest of all people those who fight for the good of their communities often fighting against the odds against vested interests and those vested interests are so often willing to use violence civil society has shaped our responses to environmental crime and continues to do so today. Here's Simone Haysum.
1: We point out the role that civil society has played over several decades, identifying problems, raising awareness around the problems, articulating those problems in international fora. It was really NGOs who brought the criminal aspects of rhino and elephant poaching into the conventions organised by UNTAC or to other conversations, which might either have not included environmental commodities as under the purview of organized crime issues, or which want to talk about environmental damage, but not necessarily criminality linked to that damage. NGOs have also been really important doing accountability work, so Corruption, another one of the lessons we pull out is what a pervasive and complex problem corruption has been. And it's often civil society, whether in the form of investigative journalists or organizations that are focused on particular areas in their problems or particular themes like corruption, who have been able to expose corruption around environmental commodities monitor the the state's performance or the the state's potential for abuses in different places, and to advocate around holding them to account. Communities are often living in or, or nearby to biodiverse areas. They often rely on those areas for various aspects of their lives. Various studies over the last few years have also shown what incredibly good stewards of land and wild creatures, indigenous communities can be. A lot of what needs to be done around communities is is recognising that role, but also in many areas where there are existing extremely strained relationships between, for example, park management authorities and local communities, um, a huge amount more dialogue and inclusivity in the strategies that are being developed there.
0: For the last phase, which takes us to the present day, I want to turn to that elephant in the room, for want of a better phrase, COVID-19.
4: The streets around Wuhan's wet market today lie eerily empty. blocked off by blue barricades, it is blamed for a global pandemic. The coronavirus has spread to countries across the world, but officials believe that it all started in Wuhan, China. It's believed that the virus may have originated from a market in the city where people can buy an assortment of wild game meat. Common public opinion is that the virus originated from a market in Wuhan, in China, from a pangolin. Scientists are trying to trace COVID-19 to its original source, and questions remain about how the virus was passed on to humans and from which species.
0: Somewhere that uh, people are saying, could this be the revenge of the pangolin? Maybe a little unfair. China has banned the trade of wildlife, as it suspects animals are behind COVID-19. But how is this going to help the plight of the pangolin? It is said to be the world's most trafficked animal.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic is itself potentially so closely linked to illegal wildlife trafficking. There, one of the most widely accepted theories about the origins of the virus is that it came from a wet market in Wuhan and from a pangolin that would, if you know anything about uh, pangolin supply chains, almost certainly have been sourced illegally. This led to a lot of debate um, in the aftermath of, of the outbreak of the pandemic about whether the appropriate responses lay in prohibition and trade bans. And while that debate didn't reach a final conclusion, I think that the complexity of the arguments that were put forward Around it, as well as the way that many people working closely on these issues over the past few decades argued closely for being sensitive to the needs of communities dependent on wild animals' food or, or, or for livelihood, as well as some of the unintended consequences that can arise from over or prohibition, showed that the debate around the complexity of regulating the wildlife trade um, had grown enormously since the 1970s. Practically on the ground, the limits to the movement of people seemed to really have an effect of decreasing poaching in a lot of protected areas. At the same time, movement restrictions were very devastating for revenue streams for a lot of protected areas. And that's something that park management authorities struggled with in various parts of the world, as well as communities who were also deriving economic benefits from tourism. So lockdowns and these economic stresses in many ways decrease the resilience of local populations, which can push people to over-harvest animals or plants. I think also in in the last two years, one of the things we've seen is, is huge frustration at the gap between the urgency of the threat that's being posed by environmental crime and the inadequacy of global institutions to stop the damage. And... Along with that has come a number of proposals for new legal frameworks that would make responses more effective or more targeted at the worst criminals rather than communities or would raise the profile of environmental crime. I think it's important to see all of those as ideas about how laws can structure response and conventions can structure response that are responding to perceived failure and in the ability of really the world to come to grips with this challenge. We talk also here about one of the major themes through the report is the role of local communities and the degree to which lip service has been paid to that role, but then there hasn't been a huge concrete investment or uh, sufficient action to, to make sure that communities are, are placed within broader strategies. And I think that conversation is also becoming more intense in a, in a number of forums and in some ways more polarized, but I think also generating a lot of really important conversation and pressure for, for change.
0: One thing Covid did accelerate is a migration to the online world and illicit markets have followed a similar route. This means our ability to collaborate has never been more important. The internet, as we know, is global and therefore requires a global response to combat environmental crime that takes place on online platforms. Here at the GI we have a group called the Market Monitoring and Friction Unit, MMFU. They are dedicated to monitoring online markets of endangered wildlife species and working on ways to disrupt them. Recently they published an investigation into the online illegal wildlife trade in Vietnam. Again, I'll put a link in the podcast notes. The report shows that all nodes of the illegal wildlife trade are active online, from rural hunters to distributors of finished products. But what's really interesting is you often think of cybercrime as secretive and anonymous. Not here. From tiger claws made into jewellery to plain ivory panels and from elephant tails to pangolin liquor. It's all quite openly sold. And like any modern business, some illegal wildlife traders actively build their brands through social media, particularly Facebook, both with the customer and other traders expanding their networks. And so, finally, we come to that all-important question. What can we do to improve our responses to organised environmental crime? Here's Simone.
1: We suggest partnering investments in law enforcement with partner ngos who can support and hold accountable the state as well as these accountability mechanisms that uh, can be provided by civil society organizations and giving them support and then strengthening the social compact at community level through dialogue and joint projects and funding for for projects so that's track one track two we're going from the opposite direction and saying what investments can be made to improve the overall environment for response and here we identify um, three areas linked to data and the underlying legal frameworks one is we're concretely proposing that the internet as a multiplier of a lot of the risks around globalization and as a force which has completely revolutionized retail markets uh, for wildlife needs to be adequately dealt with in global responses. And for that, we're proposing a global internet monitoring system which can create baselines and investigate new trends and be used uh, for holding accountable both the private sector and also supporting state regulation in this area. Linked to that and to this agenda around increasing the diversity and the quality of data that's available to inform both our understanding of the problems and our understanding of the impact of the responses. We are already suggesting that a series of conversations be convened around uh, data governance for crime data linked to the environment and how we can both use the opportunities that current levels of technology uh, give us to gather, store and work with data in collaborative and dynamic ways. Lastly, we are advocating for there to be investigation of the opportunities for legal innovation. There's a very strong track record in other environmental areas, including climate change legislation, including rights for nature, which have used mock tribunals, mock court cases to explore how legal innovation might unfold in the real world and uh, refine the policies and the proposals for those changes. We also talk here about um, the agenda around having an appropriate type of criminalization around environmental crimes, so criminalization of the most responsible actors who are deriving the most profit and benefit, who are often usually the most powerful people involved, rather than criminalization at the local level where people may be driven by very basic subsistence or livelihoods needs. And there is interesting work happening at that level around restorative justice and alternative sanctions that could also usefully be explored. So this track two is proposing these things which can create global databases, global repositories, global pushes for, for, for legal innovation that then can feed into improving responses at a local level.
0: that's it for this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'd like to thank Simone Haysum, Feray Maguwu, Vincent Oppien, Carla Mendez, Ana Paula Oliveira, Natalie Powells, Peter Wagner, Lucia Bird, Jason Eli and Virginia Camoli for being a part of this episode. We've referenced a lot of stuff during this episode and rest assured everything is listed in the podcast notes. I hope this goes some way to show the breadth of research taking place here at the GI and shows just how integrated different illicit markets are with one another. For more research, podcasts or videos which look into organised crime, head over to our website, which is globalinitiative.net, and we're also across social media. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.